So last week, if you were here, and if you weren't here, you can go back and catch up on the app. But last week, uh, we talked about the secret of contentment. I told everybody that this week, I was going to share with you what the Apostle Paul has to say is the secret of contentment. We're going to get to that at the end. But I define contentment this way, and this is just my definition. So if you don't like it, that's fine. I'm not saying it's right. It's just mine. I define contentment this way. That I may wish for things to change, but I'm at peace just the same. In other words, contentment is not dependent on my circumstances. You know you've experienced contentment when it's totally independent of your circumstances. I may wish things would change. Contentment's not saying, oh, it's just the way it is, and I'm not even going to try to change anything. Nope, that's not it. I may wish for things to change, and I may work for things to change, but I'm at peace just the same whether or not things ever do change. And then at the end of last week, and I, I thought, if nothing else, this was worth listening to the message because at the end I gave you a list of questions that I just think were incredibly helpful to, in terms of reflecting and figuring out what may be at the root of some of the discontentment we all have. And there's one of those questions I want to circle back to today and spend a little bit of time on, and it's this question right here. Where are you looking to measure if you're okay? Because all of us look somewhere. Where are you looking to measure if you're okay? If I come to you and I say, hey, Tell me how you're doing or where do you, how do you feel about where you are in life right now or parenting or, you know, whatever, finances, whatever area it is. What is it that you immediately think about in your head? Where do you look? What do you go to? What's your reference point? What's your standard? You know, you, because we all do this, we tend to look to the left or the right and, and start to compare, start to measure, start to try to figure out how we're doing compared to someone or something else. It may be a who for you that the person that you're, you know, the, the thing that you're looking to is actually a person, that it's somebody that you admire and respect and is close to you and is a part of your life and you've always thought, I want to be like them in that area or I want to experience what they've experienced or I want to live up to, you know, the standard that they've set. And so maybe it's a mom or a dad for you. It could be a brother or sister. Maybe for some of you it's a teacher or it's a coach or a mentor or you know, a boss that you had that meant so much. I don't know who that is, but for a lot of us, it's a person that's close to our lives and, and, you know, a part of our lives. And every time we think about where we are at this point in our life, we're comparing it to where they are. And that's telling us, am I doing okay? Am I not doing okay? You know, where am I? And all of that. For some of us, it's a person that's uh, distant. In other words, there's somebody that we admire. We just don't really know them that well, or we may not know them at all. But we admire so much what they accomplish. We admire so much the kind of person that they seem to be. We admire so much, you know, the, what they've achieved, whatever the case may be. Then we're looking at them going, okay, that, that's my measuring stick. It's them. I just want to get to that place. I want to do what they've done. I want to be who they are. I want, to, I want to get and hear what they've gotten and heard. And so for you, again, I don't know exactly who that is, but it's the one way to think about it if, if where you're looking to measure if you're okay as a person, the way you know that is because it's the person that if they came to you and they said, hey, you're going to be really successful or you are successful. If they came to you and they said, you're a great leader. If they came to you and said, you're a great mom. If they came to you and said, you're an incredible parent. It would just immediately change your world. If you heard those words and that affirmation from them, you would feel like, I have arrived. I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I'm successful. That's how you know if it's a person for you. Now, for others of us, it's not a person. It's not a who. It's a what. It may be a number in your head. When I make this much money, then I'll know I'm okay. Or it may be when I have this much net worth. Or it may be when I own these things. It may be when I achieve 
this much in my career or in my organization, when I reach this point, when I'm holding this position, when I'm at this place in the org chart, for some of you it may be, hey, when I am able to live this kind of lifestyle, whatever this kind of lifestyle is for you, but you've got something in your head, and so you don't feel like you're okay and you've gotten there until you do that. Or for some of you it may be, I don't feel like I'm okay and I've gotten there until other people view me in this way, and they say these things about me, and then I'll know that I'm okay. All of us have some standard. All of us have some reference point. And this is so important to ask yourself, where are you looking to measure if you're okay? This is not a bad question to ask. It's not a bad question to wonder if you're doing okay. We all do that. And we all need to know, you know, am I competent? Am I accepted? Am I loved? Am I respected? Whatever the thing is for you. But let me tell you why it's so important that you figure out what this is. Because most of the time we do this subconsciously. We don't really think this through and connect these dots. But whatever you look to to measure if you're okay is determining your level of security, confidence, and contentment. Whatever you look to will determine how secure you can be in life, how competent you're going to be, how, how, excuse me, how confident you're going to be, and then how content you're going to be in life. So you really need to know what the answer to this question is for you. Again, it's not a bad question. It's not a bad thing that you have some standard, some reference point that you use to measure if you're okay. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can get away from this because it's just innate in all human beings. We all have what I call a whisper, and that may not be the right way to describe it, but in essence, we all have a whisper inside that from time to time we hear this voice going, I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder if I'm okay. I wonder if I measure up. I wonder if I'm successful enough. I wonder if I'm good enough. I wonder if I'm, if I'm worth being loved. I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder if. That whisper is in all human beings. We all have that. And I think there's actually a reason for that whisper. I think that whisper was designed for a very specific purpose, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But my point is, it's not a bad thing to have something you're looking to. But you need to know what you're looking to because what you're looking to is going to determine just how content and secure and at peace you can be in life. If you look to the wrong thing, you'll never be at peace. If you look to the wrong thing, you'll never be happy. If you look to the wrong thing, you'll never be content. Now, you may have never had it explained this way, but one of the things that I think makes Christianity unique is that the very essence of Christianity, Christianity addresses both why we have this whisper, and Christianity also not only explains why the whisper is there, but it answers the whisper as well. At its very heart, Christianity has answers to both of those issues. In AD 49, the Apostle Paul, it's about 15 years after the resurrection or so, and the Apostle Paul has only been a follower of Jesus for about 12 years of that, maybe 13, and he's writing a letter to Christians in the region of Galatia. And in this letter, he begins to address for them the explanation of why we have this whisper. And then he begins to give them the answer to the question that the whisper asked. The answer to the question of, am I really okay? I wonder if I'm worth loving. I wonder if I'm worth respecting. I wonder if I'm doing okay. And the Apostle Paul says there is an answer. And this is what's interesting about his response. He says the answer to that question, in his view, is actually a single truth and is a single event that happened in history. And he believed that single truth and that single event 
address the questions that we all wonder, am I doing okay? And the Apostle Paul tells us that single event and that single truth should become the standard or the reference point that we use to measure whether or not we're okay. So I want to read you what he had to say, and then after that, I want to give you some really practical next steps and thoughts on how this could make such a huge difference in your life and mine. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, but when the set time had fully come, when it was just the right time, God sent his son, referring to Jesus, born of a woman, well, that's referring to his mother Mary, born under the law. Now, this is where I have to hit pause because this is the part where it gets confusing. This is new terminology for a lot of us. But Paul's writing to a group of people who, when he wrote this, they would have thought, okay, well, he's referring to the Jewish law. Because the Jews had a law that if you were born Jewish, you were born under their law, and so there were standards. There was, in essence, a moral compass that every Jew had to live by, by virtue of the fact that they were born Jewish. But I think Paul's addressing something beyond just that because he's not just writing to Jewish people in the region of Galatia. He's writing to non-Jewish people, too. And so Paul's widening it and saying, okay, you Jewish people were born under a Jewish law. We all know that. Paul was Jewish. He got that. But he says there's something that's more universal than just that. All of us are born, if you will, under a law. And by that I just mean we're all born with an internal moral compass. We're all born with a sense of I ought to and I ought not to. Well, I should and I shouldn't. A person should always and a person should never. Here's what's so fascinating about this. That moral compass, when you start getting out further and further to the edges of it, it changes from culture to culture. But when you get right to the core of the moral compass, the thing that makes the foundation of, of our moral compass, it is universal. It is true for all people in all places and all times. You can go to pretty much any culture or country in the world, and you begin to talk to people, and the foundation of this internal moral compass is the same. Some of us think, well, it's because we're Americans that we all believe certain things are right or wrong. But you can go to places outside of America and you can find in very different cultures with very different values, there are still some core principles that are at the heart of the moral compass of every single human being on the planet. I'll give you one simple example. I talked about this a little bit last week. We've all had the experience where we've been at work or we've been talking to a friend, or whatever the situation was, and we found out that someone that we really don't like very much had something very bad happen to them. And publicly, we have all said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And privately, we have thought, I am so glad that they're getting what was coming to them. They deserve all of that and even more. All of us have had these moments where we have secretly celebrated the failure of somebody else. And yet, the minute it happened, you immediately knew in your heart it was wrong. Doesn't mean you didn't do it, but you immediately knew... Boy, that's not, that's ugly. Like, that's not something that I want to be true about me. That's, that's just wrong. I, I shouldn't do that. And what's interesting is you can go to pretty much any country or culture in the world, and you can bring up that same scenario, and people in every culture have had that experience, and people in every culture have walked away going, I just know that's wrong. I'm, I'm doing it anyway, but I know that's wrong. And whenever you violate your internal moral compass, what happens? You feel guilt. We all know what that's like. And you feel insecurity. You feel guilt and you feel insecurity. Now, the reason you feel insecurity is because you intuitively know that you have violated your own internal moral compass, 
You have violated what you know to be right and wrong, and it raises the question inside of you, just like it does in me, well, am I okay? Because I just did that, and I said I should never do that, and I said human beings should never do that, and yet I did it anyway. I just violated that moral compass. I don't know if I'm okay or not. So every time you violate your own internal moral compass, it creates not just guilt, it creates insecurity in you. And then that guilt and that insecurity has to be addressed in some way. So what we often do to address that insecurity and guilt is we decide I'm going to change what I believe to align with how I'm behaving. And if I just convince myself that it's not wrong, then I won't feel guilty or insecure anymore. You have tried this and so have I, but we all know it doesn't actually work. That doesn't do away with the guilt or insecurity. Some of us have said, okay, well, I know that was wrong and I feel bad that I did that, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do something good. And if I do enough good, it'll make up for the, th the time when I violated my own internal moral compass and I did wrong, and then the good will outweigh the wrong, and then I won't feel insecure and guilty anymore. That doesn't work either. The problem with this guilt and insecurity whenever you violate an internal moral compass is no amount of good will satisfy it. No amount of looking around and finding somebody who's worse than you and they violated more of this moral compass than you have will make you feel better. It, it won't solve it and resolve it. No purchase, no promotion, no I'm going to achieve more and accomplish more and you know get this, no marriage, no money, no achievement, accomplishment. None of that will resolve the internal tension that we all feel whenever we violate our internal moral compass. And the reason that is true is because the Apostle Paul taught that your internal moral compass and mine, the reason it's universal is not because it's actually ours. He taught that it was given to us by our Heavenly Father, that God has hardwired into all of us an internal moral compass, which explains why you can go to any place on the planet and talk to anybody you want to talk to, and there's this, this core foundation of a moral compass that is the same for everybody, no matter what culture they grew up in. And Paul taught that whenever you and I violate God's moral compass that he's placed within us, it breaks our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that is at the root of all of our guilt and insecurity. That's why doing more good doesn't fix it. Because it doesn't address the root issue, which is I have a broken relationship with God. And until I reconcile that, the guilt and the insecurity won't go away. And this whisper of am I doing okay will not disappear. It just won't disappear. So Paul says, you got to understand. The whole point, the whole reason that Jesus showed up was to address this because there was no other way to address it. This explains, by the way, how we have all watched people who we view to be extremely successful, and yet they were never content. And you thought to yourself, and you maybe even said to a friend, I don't get it. If I was as successful as them, if I had achieved all that, if I was at that point, if I made that much money, if I was married to them, if my kids had grown up and turned out that way, if I were in their shoes... I'd be perfectly content. But you're watching them. They have everything in the world, and they're still not content. They're still trying to, there's still something more they're looking for. It's because that internally, there's still an insecurity. Internally, there's still a sense of guilt. Internally, there's still a breakdown. And no amount of success, no matter how much you achieve or accomplish, no amount of possessions, no amount of relationships, fix that because at its root, it's an issue of a broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is what the Apostle Paul taught. And so he said when Jesus showed up, Jesus showed up to provide a solution 
to the question and the whisper that rattles around inside of our hearts. Jesus showed up to provide an explanation and a solution for the guilt and the insecurity that we all feel from time to time when we violate that internal moral compass, that standard, if you will, that we know and we feel we should live up to. So, he says, because of that issue, God sent Jesus, born of Mary, and Jesus was born under the law, which was just Paul's way of saying, Jesus had the exact same internal moral compass. The only difference was he was able to follow it perfectly. He never violated it, so he never had guilt or insecurity. And the reason he did all of that was for you and me. Specifically, Paul says he did it to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, I want to focus on both of these words here that are highlighted. Let's start with the word redeem. We don't use this word a lot except talking about redeeming points. We get what it's like to redeem points. I got all these points on my credit card, or I got all these points at this store. So, well, how'd you get all those points? So I don't want to talk about that because it cost me a lot of money to get those points. But anyway, I got those points now, so I'm going to redeem those points and get something for free, and it, you know, it makes it worth it, all the money I spent. That's kind of how that works, right? So we, we understand redeeming points at the gas station or wherever it is. We, we redeem points all the time. Re- redeeming This word redeem, it is not a personal or emotional term at all, is it? Redeem is is all transactional and all financial. That's what it is. You have never redeemed points and got all emotional about it, have you? Never have. You never redeemed points and it's just felt so personal to you. Like it just drew you so much closer to that company. Like that doesn't happen. It is merely transactional and financial. To redeem something, you know what this means. To redeem something means I'm going to win that back, or I'm going to buy that back, I'm going to get that back. Well, Paul says, okay, the whole point of Jesus dying on a cross and rising again was because you had a debt, I had a debt, we could not pay. And so he decided, I'm going to step in. They violated their internal moral compass. They violated the standard that God put on their hearts. And so there's a debt there, and there's a broken relationship, so I'm going to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I'm going to do for them what no amount of good can do, because no amount of good can undo what's been done. So I'm going to step in, and I'm going to redeem them. You can think of it this way. Jesus showed up, lived a perfect life, sinless life, then died on a cross for all of us who, to use Paul's term, are sinners— We violated God's standard. We missed the mark. And then he looked at us and said, okay, my sinless life accumulated all of these points. Good news for you, I'm going to let you have my points if you want them. You can redeem my points to restore a relationship with God. You can redeem my points and you can cancel the death that you have with your heavenly father. You redeem my points and the statement will be balanced again. That's good news, but that's not really incredibly emotional. So Paul says, wait a minute, it's better than that. Forgiveness, that's good. Okay, I get to spend eternity with God in heaven. Well, I don't even know what that really means, but okay, that's good. But Paul says, no, no, no. It's way more personal than that. He says, not only did Jesus show up to redeem us, but Jesus also showed up to make it possible for us to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Now, when you think of adoption, you think of the same thing I do. What we know of adoption is this, and we've all watched this happen. Matter of fact, we've got a lot of incredible families in our church who have adopted. We just 
think the world of you when you do that. Everybody's cheering you on. It's, it's an, adoption is a highly emotional thing. Adoption is incredibly personal. And whenever you watch one of these families, you know, adoption for us is typically someone will take an infant or a young child and they'll adopt them and say, okay, they're coming out of the foster system or they're coming out of whatever. They don't have a family. I'm going to adopt them. We're going to treat them like family. They're a permanent part of our family, a son or a daughter of us from this point forward. And whenever that happens, if you've done this, if you've adopted, you know, it is incredibly personal and emotional, isn't it? It's challenging, but it's so gratifying. It's challenging, but it's so worth it. And all of us who watch you do that, all of us who are surrounding you, it's personal and emotional for all of us as well. Adoption is something that moves us deeply. But that is not the kind of adoption that the Apostle Paul is referring to. The adoption that we practice today did not exist in first century Greek or Roman culture. The only adoption they practiced was very, very different. Now think about this. Here's how their adoption worked. Now remember, in the first century, this wasn't right, but it was a male-dominated culture. So females didn't have a lot of rights. So here's what would happen. The thing that was most important to a family, particularly a family of influence or a family of means, the thing that was most important was to have a son worthy to carry on the family name and to take the inheritance of the family. That's what mattered to them. And so this was a common occurrence in the first century. A, a male might be born, grow up, become a young man or a middle-aged man even. And that man had proven to be responsible. That man had proven to be dependable. That man had proven to be successful. That man had proven to be a person of high character. And it was not uncommon for a man like that to receive a letter. And the letter would be from another prominent family. And the letter would say, in essence, we have been watching you. We know you've turned out great. So now, after you have proven you're going to be such a great individual, we would like to adopt you into our family. And these males would often say, okay. And they would stay a part of their biological family, but they would also then be a part of this other family. And they would become the son that was going to inherit everything and the son that was going to carry on that family name as well. This happened all the time. Sometimes it happened because these families didn't have a son, and they, in that culture, they just wouldn't give females that kind of respect. Sometimes it happened because these families had sons, and none of the sons had grown up to be worthy enough in their eyes to receive the inheritance and carry on the name. So they just went out and hand-selected a son that they thought had all the qualities they wanted, and they brought him into the family. So when Paul writes that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is what every one of his readers thought about. Only Paul's point is slightly different. Paul is saying you need to understand that not only did Jesus show up and basically earn all the points that you needed so you could redeem his points to have your relationship with God restored and evened, your debt canceled, but it's better than that. Your heavenly Father sent Jesus to let you know that he wants to adopt you as a son or a daughter of his, that you are invited to be a part of his family. Jesus was your letter saying, I've been watching you. The only difference is, I've been watching you. You're an adult. I've seen all the messes you've made. I've seen all the times you've been irresponsible. 
I've been, seen all the times you've been undependable. I've seen all the times you've violated your character. I've seen all the times you've hurt other people. I've seen all the messes that you've created. It's okay. I'm still inviting you in to my family. This was the power of what Jesus came to do. And this was the message of the Apostle Paul. That we have been invited to be adopted as sons or daughters of our Heavenly Father, not because we have proven to be such great people, and so now He wants us on His side. No, He has seen all the flaws, all the failures, all the mistakes, all the sins, all the mess-ups, and He's still inviting us to be a part of His family. And so in order to drive that point home, Paul continues and says this. He says, because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, a spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, this word Abba literally just means daddy. This is Paul's way of saying, I don't want you to miss how emotional and personal this should be for you, that your heavenly father has done everything he can to invite you to call him daddy. Now, if you tuned out, tune back in for just a minute, okay? Because this connects directly with the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. How do you get to the point where you can say, I may wish this would change, but I'm at peace just the same? How do you get to the point that your contentment is completely independent of your circumstances? Here's the secret. The secret of contentment is security. That's it. It's security in your identity. It's being secure in who you are and whose you are. The secret, and this is the only way you get there, that no matter what's going on in your world, you're at peace. The only way you can get there is to reach the point where you do not feel the need to look to the left or the right. That whenever you hear that whisper, am I okay? Am I doing okay? Am I worth it? Am I worth being loved? Am I, am I worth them staying with me? Is, is she going to keep loving me? Is, is he going to stay married to me? Are, are, they, are they still going to respect me? Anytime you hear those questions rattling around your head, the Apostle Paul would say the secret of being content and of silencing that whisper is not to look to the left or right anymore. It's to look up and to remind yourself of the identity that you can have in your heavenly Father, because you have been invited to be a son or daughter of His. And He is there going, hey, son, hey, daughter, come here, come here. Look into my eyes. Look into my eyes. You're fine because you're mine. That's it. Yeah, but what about and all the stuff? And God's going, I know, I know. I knew you'd screw all that up. I already knew. I've seen all your mess. It's fine. You're fine because you're mine. Let me see if I can explain this a different way. I'll ask you this question. Who do great parents compare their kids to? You already know the answer to this. It's nobody, right? Great parents don't compare their kids to anybody. Have you ever gone to the hospital to visit parents who've just had a child, and you know you go to the nurseries in those hospitals, and they got all the babies lined up and the little things, you know, all across there? Have you ever seen a parent staring through the window going, all right, well, ours is okay, but I wish... I wish she had his nose, and I wish he had her eyes, and I wish... 
Have you ever heard parents staring across there and going, okay, we just got to be honest. There are a lot of good-looking babies here. Our baby's ugly. It's the ugliest baby here. You've, you've never heard that, right? Why? That baby may be the ugliest baby there. There are ugly babies. You do know that. It's true. <laughs> some of us may have been some. There are ugly babies. But listen, there's no great parent who's going to look and go, well, my baby's just ugly. They're, I wish they were a lot more like the others. No, no, no. Because any great parent is looking at their baby going, you're fine because you're mine. You're the best. You couldn't be any better because you're mine. I'm not comparing you to any other baby in this nursery. Even as kids get older, great parents don't compare their kids to other kids. Think about it. What do you think when you hear a parent, because it happens sometimes, what do you think when you hear a parent compare their kid to another kid academically. I just wish my kid was more like so-and-so in school. Or they, you hear their kid, them saying, I wish my kid was more like so-and-so in sports. Or I wish my kid was more like so-and-so at, um, you know, in band. Whatever the thing is. What do you think when you hear a parent compare their kid to another child? You do not think, oh, that's just a bad kid. That sucks. You got a bad kid. I don't know what you're going to do about that. You don't think that. I'll tell you what you think, and most of you aren't brave enough to say it. But you think, you don't think that's a bad kid. You don't think, well, what's wrong with that kid? Something's wrong with that kid. No, you think something's wrong with that parent. That's what you think. You think, why in the world would a parent compare, why are they comparing their kid to somebody else? There's nothing wrong with their kid. They ought to love their kid for who they are. That's what you think. That's what any great parent would do. There's nothing wrong with the kid. There's just something wrong with the parent. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you this. Who do you think your perfect heavenly father compares you to? Nobody. You think your perfect heavenly father is going, they're all right, I just wish they were a little more like their dad. They're all right, but if they just turned out like their sister. They're all right, but I wish they were a little more like that boss. They're okay, but they really should be more like the pastor. Everybody should be more like the pastor. No, that's ridiculous. If a great parent doesn't compare their child to anybody then can you imagine your perfect, loving, heavenly father comparing you to anyone? No. He's looking at you going, okay, I, I, other people may see all the flaws and failures. We'll, we'll work on that. But come, come, look me in the eyes. You're fine because you're mine. Now, if you could grasp that, it changes everything for you, and it changes everything for me. So let me go back to our question. Where are you looking to measure if you're okay? Because you've got somewhere you're looking, so do I. But I want to tell you something. If you're looking to the wrong standard or the wrong reference point, you'll never be secure, you'll never be content, you'll never be at peace. It's impossible. Because that reference point will always be shifting. So you'll never quite measure up. Why would you look to your dad, who was never happy and content with who he was, 
and let what he says about you shape you? Why would you look to that person who criticized you and you've been trying to prove them wrong, but they were a mess themselves behind the scenes? You get the wrong reference point, oh, it's, that, it's just that amount of success if I can just get there. And then you get there and realize, well, I'm still not content. It must be the next step and then the next step. No. If you want to be content, you have to be secure in your identity. You have to be secure in who you are and whose you are. And there is only one reference point that you can use to measure if you're okay that will solve that tension for you. And it is your heavenly Father. So, you want to learn the secret of contentment? Here's what you have to do. You have to get your view about you from the one who made you, the one who loves you so much that Jesus gave his life on a cross for you, and the one who redeemed you, the one who said, okay, okay, I've earned all the points that need to be earned, but you can take them now and redeem them, and you can you can pay off that debt you have with your Heavenly Father for all of your sin, for, for all those times you didn't live up to your internal moral compass. All that insecurity, it can be gone. And He's adopting you now. He's inviting you to be a part of His family. You're fine because you're His. You've got to get to the point where you get your view about you from the one who made you, the one who loves you, and the one who redeemed you. When that becomes what shapes how you view you. Every time you hear that whisper, I wonder if I'm doing okay. Your answer will be, well, I'm not going to look to the left or right and try to figure that out. Let me just look up. What's my heavenly father say about me? Oh, yeah. He says, you're fine because you're mine. Oh, yeah, Jesus gave his life on a cross because he loved me that much think I'm okay. Now, that is not a license not to change. It's not a license not to grow. Actually, it's a motivation to grow and to change more than you ever will otherwise. Because now you're changing and growing and addressing all the things that need to improve in your life, but you're not doing it to try to earn unconditional love from someone or something. Now you're doing it because you are unconditionally loved. And that is a very, very freeing thing. So, just imagine this with me for a second. Imagine what it would be like if this was true of you. If this is how you got your view about you. Imagine how you would deal with failure. Failure wouldn't be an identity for you anymore. Some of you are just devastated whenever you fail because it's an, you call yourself, I'm a failure. Well, that's an identity. No, 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 no. Your identity is shaped by the one who made you, loves you, and redeemed you. Now failure is just an event for you. I failed. I am not a failure. And you're free to continue to learn and to grow. Imagine how differently you would handle criticism. It's not that you can't learn something from it now, but it wouldn't shake you to your core, and you wouldn't just do everything, bend over backwards to try to you know, prove that person wrong or earn that person's acceptance again. No, no, no. You just take the truth out of the criticism, you'd apply it, and you'd grow and improve. But the whole time, you'd be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I need to change that. I need to grow. Maybe they had a point there. But that didn't shake who I know I am, and that didn't shake how much I know I'm loved by my Heavenly Father. 
so I can be at peace in the midst of this criticism because I know how he feels about me. Imagine how differently you would love people if you knew you were unconditionally loved. You'd start loving people who didn't love you back. You'd start loving people who are your enemies. You wouldn't need to get love back in order to love because you'd already gotten all the love you needed. You were, you were embracing an unconditional love. Your heavenly Father's extended to you, so you don't need to get anything back from those people. If they never love you back, it'd be okay. You could love them anyway. Imagine how differently you would treat people. Imagine how many things you wouldn't chase simply because you're trying to find a sense of affirmation. Imagine how many things you wouldn't chase and how many things you wouldn't purchase because if you got right down to the root of it, you just feel like, I need those things to feel like I'm okay. You wouldn't need them anymore. Doesn't mean you couldn't have them and couldn't enjoy them, but you wouldn't need them anymore because they have nothing to do with your identity. You are secure in who you are and whose you are. That would change everything. So, as we wrap up, the band's going to come back out here now, and in just a second, we're going to end with a song that reminds us of this truth. And it may be a new song for you, but even if you don't want to sing along, I, I hope you'll pay attention to the lyrics of this song a little bit. And here's why I think this song is so important. This may not be the story for you or the case for you, but I grew up with two great parents, and I know how blessed I am to have grown up with them. I hope they're not here in the service because I don't like telling them that. It goes to their head. But they're, they were incredible parents. They were great parents. And there were times my dad was a pastor, okay? And if you've never been a, a pastor or a preacher's kid, then you don't necessarily get this probably. But being a, being a pastor and having kids is a unique deal for most pastors. It's not a big deal for Jen and I because you guys are so incredible about this. But in a traditional church, when you're a preacher's kid, everybody watches you a little more closely and they have expectations for you that are a little higher. And a lot of times what happens is uh, pastors feel like that whatever their kids do reflect on them. And so if their kids get out of line and do things that other normal kids do, well, all of a sudden they're so embarrassed because they're the pastor and what will people think about me? And it just becomes a big deal and it creates all this tension in these families. Well, that never happened in our family. Never did. They never treated us any differently. Mom and dad didn't. We did plenty of things. I shouldn't throw my siblings under the bus. I'll just say I did plenty of things. They all, we all did. Did plenty of things that were out of line. And did plenty of things that easily could have embarrassed them. Maybe did embarrass them. I don't know. And it wasn't that they didn't address those things with us. It wasn't that they didn't say, hey, you need to change. Hey, you shouldn't do that again. Hey, that's not helpful to you or to anybody else. You hurt them when you did that. It's not they didn't talk to us about that. But here's what made all the difference. After one of those, any one of those instances where we got off track and messed things up, every time we went back home, we never, mom and dad were never waiting there to talk to me with their arms crossed, going, okay, you got to clean that up and fix that, and you got to knock that off, or we're not going to keep having you around here like this. No, no, no. The thing that made all the difference is every time I went back, they were going to address it with me. But they opened it up with arms wide open. 
I knew it didn't matter how bad I screwed up. And some of us in the family tested that a long way. It didn't matter how much we screwed up. Every time we walked back, there'd be arms wide open. Because their love for us was unconditional. And they cared about us more than they cared about how they looked to other people. Here's what I want you to know. Some of you have walked away from God and faith and church entirely because it's not your fault. It was presented to you that your heavenly father is standing there with arms crossed. Every time you screwed up, he was shaking his head. Going, until you clean that up, you're not welcome back here. That's a lie. It's not true. It was Paul's whole point. It doesn't matter how much of a mess you have made. When you turn and head back towards your heavenly father, he's standing there with arms wide open. Ready to redeem you. Because he wants you to be, and he treats you as a son or daughter of his. And when you understand that, you never have to worry about feeling insecure again. Because you can get your view about you from the one who made you, unconditionally loves you, and has already redeemed you and all the mistakes and sins you'll make. So we want to end today by celebrating that and reminding you of that and leaving you with that message to carry with you this week. So stand with me if you will. Jen's going to lead us.